y'all. Welcome back to The One Thing Podcast. I'm Sarah Hendricks. And I'm Chris Dixon. And today we were very fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to Jason Pfeiffer. Like Michelle. Like Michelle. (laughs) And at, at the core of what we teach and what we believe is for you to be enabled or have the ability to transform, to change, to adapt and to grow, it starts by challenging the way you think. And we have to first acknowledge and recognize that what got us here won't get us there. And our ability to be open to new mindsets or to challenge the way that we are approaching uh, our opportunities or the way that we're approaching the world in general is uh, a certain lens. And we need to be able to change lenses, grow that, uh, be open to new things, to be able to see clearly about what's in front of us, where do we want to go, what do we want to do, and being able to adapt to change. And we had a really good conversation today with Jason about how important it is to start with that mindset to give you the the capability of adapting and how that's so important. Yeah, Jason's story is really interesting. He's the editor-in-chief at Entrepreneur Magazine, and people were asking him the question constantly, like, what makes up a great, successful entrepreneur? And at the core... It ends up being about adaptability. And in order to have adaptability and be adaptable, you really have to focus on, Chris, what you said, which is being able to change and transform your mindset. So it was a great conversation. I definitely took away a lot. And he's a former South Floridian. So we all have something in common. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, we, we talk about mindset. We talk about change. We talk about embracing change. We talk about the ability to be more resilient, set yourself up for success in the future. So we're excited to share this with you. And let's go talk to Jason. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The One Thing Podcast. We're here with Jason Pfeiffer, who is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, a startup advisor, host of multiple podcasts, Build for Tomorrow and Problem Solvers, and has taught his techniques for adapting to change at companies including Pfizer, Microsoft, Chipotle, to name a few. Uh, He's got a new book coming out that is Build for Tomorrow, an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast, and future-proofing your career, which is on sale now. Jason, welcome. Thanks for for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, before we kind of jump in, I know I did a little intro for you, but do you mind giving us a little bit more background? um, What brought you here today and and what's going on for you? Yeah, sure. So a little background. Well, I, my career has been, uh, I was a newspaper reporter, I was a magazine editor, and I got to Entrepreneur Magazine and became editor-in-chief in 2016. And people started asking me this question wherever I went. I'd go on podcasts, or I'd go speak at conferences. And people would always ask me, what are the qualities of successful entrepreneurs? Like, what, what is the thing everyone has in common? And this was stumped me for a little bit. Uh, one, because I just didn't have a good answer. But also, two, because I was really confused about how there was this uncoordinated effort to ask me this same question wherever I went. And I came to eventually realize that uh, the, the reason why it was happening was, was kind of clear. If you listen to the questions that people ask you, you come to realize that the questions people are asking you are actually them telling you what they think your value is to them. And if you can dig into that and understand what they're looking for from you, well, then you're a step ahead in the game and delivering value and being really useful to people. So I started, I started to wonder, well, what is the answer to this question? And I spent years talking to people about it, thinking about it, studying it. 
I came to an answer, which was that the most successful people are the most adaptable. And yet, then the question is, well, how are they adaptable? It doesn't seem to be something that people are born with. It seems to be something that they can learn. And the pandemic was the thing that gave me the answer to that question because the pandemic was this interesting moment when everyone went through the same change at the same time, but then did radically different things. And I I started talking to people as they either struggled to cling to the past and it's like clinging to air, you know, and um, um, or were really adaptable and had figured out what to do next with their business or their lives. And, and I realized that the um, everybody, no matter who they were, were, were going through change in the same four phases, panic, adaptation, new normal, and then wouldn't go back. This moment where they say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. And... Um, and and when I figured that out, I got to say, like, now I had an answer to the question that people kept asking me. Like, I, I just got really excited because I'd spent this journey trying to understand what my value was to people. And when you finally get it, you want to do nothing but tell it. And so that's from the rooftops. kind of what I'm here to do. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, there's there's something that uh, I think you said in your book, but it's without the ability to embrace change and adapt, your expiration date is quickly approaching. Yeah, I love that. that. True. Thanks. I like it's it's nice to be quoted back to you yourself. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, but it's true, right? I mean, like, look, we all. I mean, everything that we do has an expiration date, and uh, you know, like every everything that we build, every idea that we have. It, it works for some particular moment in time and then it will stop working or it will stop feeling as relevant or something. And so, um, you know, it's really a question of like, how closely do we want to anchor ourselves to the things that we've made that are going to expire? Uh, I mean, when I say it like that, nobody would be like, oh, well, I want to anchor myself to something that's going to drag me to the bottom of the sea. But like, but but that's what we ultimately do because we get protective of these things. We're comfortable with these things. And then we don't want to let them go even as they kind of start to rot in our refrigerator. Did you find a lot uh, in your research and in talking to people that being creatures of habit tends to elevate that feeling a little bit of like, you don't want to let something go. You don't have the ability to adapt and it, ends up coming back to just, you know, being a creature of habit and loving that comfortability. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that everyone is in some way a creature of habit. And nobody likes tossing away things that they were comfortable with. I I, I don't know anybody who who wants to do that. Uh, and and I, I would argue that, I mean, I'm pretty good at that now. Um, and yet still, it's, it's scary. And... Um, and can be disorienting, and and it, and and it's like, I mean, I just this is the smallest of things, but I I, I just uh, you know I give the I have this keynote that I give all the time um, to companies and you know events that hire me, and uh, I recently realized that like a part of the keynote didn't work as well as I maybe had always thought it did, or maybe it was working just fine, but there was like something that I would want to bring in that's better. And so I had needed to kill something off and like move some things around. And I have to tell you, like I immediately, even though I'm really good at, at change now, like I, I, like my instinct was to say, ah, I don't need to do that. Or, eh, let me, that's just like a lot of work, right? Like I'm already, I'm really far ahead here, right? Like I know I don't have to prepare for anything anymore. I just show up and I do it. And it makes good money. Like, why would I make it more complicated for myself and and like s- step back so that I'm not delivering 
the perfect version of this old talk, but instead have to figure out this new one. And um, and I would say that it, whenever you catch yourself in that moment where you're like pushing back against something, that's a pretty good reason to interrogate whether it's really, really valuable and whether it's worth doing. Because yes, it creates some challenges in the interim. Like, you know, is, is, there's some work that needs to be done. But we're not we're not here to repeat ourselves for the rest of time. We're here to grow and to develop big new things. And that doesn't happen without throwing away some old things. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. I love that because a challenge, right? We're all about challenging ourselves and it normally happens in moments of trauma or uncertainty or, you know, rock bottom or failure or whatever it is. It really evokes this next level of change to say, okay, now there's a fork in a road of something that's happened. You either can take the mindset of how do I grow and develop and move on from this or, you know, how do I stay the same? Yeah, I love it, Sarah. You 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 went exactly where I was going to go to, and you mentioned growth, and it's about mindset, right? If you're if you're going to be open to the opportunity of change, you have to be oriented in a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a quote that I love that I use in trainings when I'm I'm talking about transforming the way you think and being open to change. And it's an Einstein quote, not the one that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one is: we cannot solve our, solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. And I love that because it it acknowledges like, look, what got us here won't get us there. And we, if we're going to recognize that change needs to happen, we need to first acknowledge that our mindset has to shift, right? Yeah, that's that's totally right. Yeah, what what got us, what, what got you here won't get you there, which is I think the single greatest book title like of all time. It's so good. Um, <laughs> uh, I uh, very jealous of it. Um, you know, and. and and so, of course, this leads to this question, which is, okay, well, when you're facing down the new thing, how do you get over the hump? Because, uh, I mean, so you quoted Einstein. I, I will, I will parry with Ryan Reynolds. Uh, <laughs> at, you know, it was the natural next, next person uh, when you're quoting Einstein. So, um, so I, you know, I talked to Ryan for the cover of the magazine a year or so ago, and. He, people may not know, but Ryan, in addition to being an actor, got into all this interesting business. He started a advertising, co-founded an advertising agency called Maximum Effort and uh, became a controlling owner in Mint Mobile and Aviation Gin. So he's got himself into these spaces that he doesn't really you know, have any training in. And, um, and he, he, we were talking about that in that transition. And he told me, to be good at something, you have to be willing to be bad. 
And I loved that. I like immediately wrote that down. And, and, and the reason I love it is because it really reframes that experience. You know, if, if we're if we're starting something new, uh, I think oftentimes the 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 bar that we set for ourselves is, am I good at this? Am I going to be good at this? And um, if you think of it in terms of in, to be good at something, you have to be willing to be bad. Well, then the the answer is no. Like, you know, are you good at this new thing? No. And you're you're not going to be. And in fact, you're it, nobody is good at the very beginning. And therefore, the thing that separates us is not are you good at a brand new thing, but rather are you willing to tolerate being bad for long enough that you get to good? I think that most people are not willing to tolerate being bad for long enough. I think most people give up pretty easily. And so the thing that enables success is 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 that tolerance of the discomfort. Well, it's also the failure aspect of it, right? People just don't want to fail. And I think they get scared when they're trying to instill a new habit or they're trying to go for their dreams um, or they have big aspirations that they're trying to go for. And the minute they feel like they're going to fail... It's it goes back to that uncomfortability and wanting to pull back because God forbid, like we fail and we have that terrible feeling when in actuality, you have to be fearless when it comes to failure in order to keep that growing. To your point, yeah, and 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 not even think of it as failure, right? Just Mm -hmm. think of it as just think of it as data gathering. Exactly. I love that. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, And so, if you're gathering that data, we need some kind of system or process, right? We need some kind of reflection, a period of time where you're recognizing like, you know, I'm, I'm at this point, I need to get to this point, capture the learning, seek out the information you need to be able to recognize, you know, in shorter intervals that, you know, there's, there's this growth opportunity. Yeah, I think that that's totally right. Um, I, I, so there was this big moment for me when I first became, so I became editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine in 2016, as I said, and then shortly thereafter, uh, I got an offer to speak at a conference for entrepreneurs. It was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. I, you know, I had been like interviewed on panels on stage before, but that's super easy. You don't have to practice or anything. And so, uh, but now here I, I was, I, they wanted me to give a talk in, in Scottsdale, Arizona of all random places. <laughs> and uh, in front of, you know, at this like hotel conference center or something or other. And, uh, and Mark, and I was opening for Marcus Limonis uh, from CNBC's The Prophet. So, uh, you know, I came up with a talk and I'm practicing it a million times and I'm in the hotel and I'm pacing back and forth in my room the night before and I'm kind of practicing this thing. And then the, 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 the moment comes and I'm standing on the side of the stage and I'm looking out into this audience and some MC or whoever is introducing me. And, uh, you know, and I'm thinking, I don't know what these people expect. I don't, I don't know if what I'm going to say to them is going to be good. I don't know where Marcus Limonis is, but possibly he's listening and I'm going to embarrass myself in front of him. Like, I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going on. And, uh, and I was like, what is the, is there something that I can tell myself right now that sort of gets me onto this stage uh, as this guy is introducing me? And I, and I, I came up with something. And the thing that I came up with was, I cannot wait to do this the second time. Um, because that just reframes the whole experience, right? Like if, if the point of it is not to go out and like kill it, right? Like if the point of it is not like I'm going to be a legend in Scottsdale, Arizona, like that's not what's going to happen. So instead, like the thing is, 
well, the whole purpose of this is simply to get through it, right? Like that, like on the other side of this, right? Like I, it was not even a long talk. It might've been a 20 minute slot that I had. Like on the other side of this 20 minutes, I will know a lot more than I do right now. And um, I will have learned how people are reacting to the information that I have, how I am on stage. Uh, there's, there's just all sorts of things that I'm going to learn. And um, the only way to get there, only way to get to the second time where I will be at least moderately better than this time is to just do this. And if we could just frame the new things that we're doing in terms of in terms of that, in terms of the purpose of it is not, not because there's a do or die moment, but rather just the purpose of it is because we have to get through it to become better for the next time. Well, then everything starts to feel a little different. And that is now what I tell myself anytime I try something new. Yeah, that's great. I, I have a similar process. I, I I try to tell myself this is growth I'm experiencing. <laughs> when it feels uncomfortable and it, you're in that space of oh, I got to check my ego. I need to be vulnerable. I need to be willing right. to be bad. As Ryan Reynolds, uh, you quoted earlier, yeah. have to be willing to be bad to get good. So just like have to connect that feeling of I suck with <laughs> <laughs> this is actually growth. And then like again, like I mentioned before, I, I find the greatest value in capturing the small learnings. Yeah. Um, in small intervals so that you're you're staying as connected to your goal or where you want to go as possible instead of going longer periods of time and then checking in. Like maybe you go two months down this path and you're like, oh wow, now I've got a big gap between where I am now and where I'm trying to be. And you have to make bigger corrections that are more discouraging to people and, it, and they feel like, ah, now my goal's unachievable and I don't want to do it. Right. Yeah. I I yeah, I think that's a that's a really great point. And and you know, it comes back to the if you can make this kind of thing a habit for yourself, then it no, then no one alteration, uh, no one discomfort feels like it is an aberration or too difficult to achieve because it is simply part of an ongoing process. Uh, it's the reason to keep challenging ourselves, right? Is because, um, I don't know, it's... <laughs> I mean, it's almost like... You know what I have a really hard time doing is... I, I this I've never thought about this connection before so this might be a metaphor that goes absolutely nowhere but um but but uh you know what i have a really hard time doing is getting into cold water uh like i really i really i hate cold water i grew up in south florida there's no, no cold water there you can't find it if you tried and uh and um and so when like my wife and i and our two little boys will go on vacation somewhere and we go to like a you know whatever a hotel and they want me to go swimming with the family and the water is like 79 degrees like i cannot get in that water you know i just can't um, and, uh, and the reason is because the last time that I got in that water was like a year and a half ago, right? Like I'm not acclimated to it at all. Um, but then I watch my kids who like getting cold water all the time and it does not even phase them. Uh, now part of that might be some weird kids physiology that's happening. Cause like, I don't know, I don't know why kids are able to get in cold water so easily, but they seem to be. But, um, but also I think part of it is that it's just like one, they haven't learned that it's abnormal, and so they don't think about it. And two, they're doing it more often. And, um, and you know, like maybe the best thing that I need to do is actually just every single time there's an opportunity to get in cold water, just get in it. Because that'll mean that like when it comes time to do it because there's value, because like my whole family is in the pool and they're trying to get me to go in and I don't want to, that I'm not like belly aching outside and I actually just can get in and enjoy myself. How was that? I don't great. know. How was that metaphor? It's great. great. I mean, lean into the challenge, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. embrace it. That's that's awesome. It's funny. You're talking a to two former Floridians, so we yeah. really. Ah! <laughs> and that's uh, funny. We we just spoke a, a few weeks ago with uh, a, a woman who's in Alaska, 
And she's in the Air Force. She was on the podcast and she's a triathlete and she trains in that water. Oh, and man. I was trying to understand how one could cold plunge for three hours and she's adapted to it. So to your point, I mean, just do it. Get in the water, right? Yeah. I love this. Um, this It's a little bit of a tangent, but right in order to be a successful entrepreneur and we're talking about adaptability, you know, whether you develop it or you're born with it or what have you, in order to get there, it's kind of twofold, right? It's like being really good at establishing habits and, you know, following through with those habits. And then number two is transforming the way you think and really taking it on to say, okay, I'm going to walk on stage and constantly tell myself that I can't wait to do this for the second time. I think there's a lot of repetition that's happening in order for you to become adaptable. If I'm hearing that correctly, yeah, I think that's right. You know, it, it's it's interesting. I was just talking to, and this is, I don't have I don't have a mastery of this subject because it just was one interview for something that I'm working on that I'm in the middle of right now. Uh, but I was I was just talking to this um, this professor at Wake Forest who studies how people learn, and uh, and he was saying that you know we, we all think that we learn from experience it, I, we do but the funny thing is that when you actually study it what you find is that people learn actually quite slowly from experience like we, we actually have to have the same experience a number of times before we really start to change our behavior uh at, at, you know in, in relation to it and uh you know part of that is because every experience is like a little bit different right i mean it, it's obviously there's some experiences where like you know you touch the stove and it's hot and it, like you don't never do that again because uh, every stove looks the same and it's pretty clear whether it's hot or not like right but but when they're more complex experiences uh we you know we we can we can start to like justify them in different ways you know like oh well you know i i i went on that I went to that meeting and that didn't work really well, but there were like 27 different things that happened. And I'm not exactly sure which one to learn from. And so it, it actually takes us a while to learn, which, which is um, more places which is, to hide, right? Which is, yeah, more places to hide. That's a great way of saying it. And, um, but you know, so like, what do you do? What's the lesson there? I think the lesson is more experience, right? I mean, just the more times that you put yourself out there, the more data points you'll have for, for things to learn from. And the more you can start to calibrate. Uh, uh, the way that you're thinking to the moment. I, I mean, Sarah, I thought that that was a nice way of, of putting it about how you have to sort of change the way that you think because um, I what I have found is for myself is I, I don't, you know, I just, I spent a lot of time with entrepreneurs very abruptly. You know, I, I, like I came from media. The majority of my career was in media. And then all of a sudden I go from, I don't, you know, I mean, like I was at Men's Health for three years, I'm like talking to athletes and stuff, right? And uh, and and then abruptly, 2015, 2016, I'm talking to entrepreneurs all the time. And it took me about a year or so. But like, I just started thinking differently. Um, just like, the, I just started evaluating the things that I was doing and the opportunities ahead of me differently. Um, I started being less concerned about things that I did when I was thinking of myself as a media person. And I really, I came to this phrase, which was that I am calibrating my way of thinking. Like I am just, Mm -hmm. I'm spending so much time with people who think differently that it is enabling me to think differently. Um, That is available to everybody. Right, that's a matter of the network that you're in and um, and the the aspirations that you have. And changing the way that you think is perhaps the most powerful thing that you can do for yourself. Yeah, I love that because then it unlocks the ability for you to identify and get clarity on 
first, where you want to go, second, how you want to get there. And then, you know, you can really break down the plan and hold yourself accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, You you know, uh, so so this book that we've mentioned here called Build for Tomorrow that I wrote is, is, it's my first book, but it's, uh, but it's my first book with my name on it by itself. Um, a couple of years ago, when I was towards the very beginning of my time at Entrepreneur, I, I, there was a book that I wrote with my wife. It was a romantic comedy. I promise this is going to stay on point. Um, but, <laughs> I love this uh, already. Yeah. So um, so it was a romantic comedy. It was, it was called Mr. Nice Guy. And, and we had started it before I got to Entrepreneur. But you know, by the time the book actually came out, I was, I was at Entrepreneur. And... Um, and uh, you know whatever it came out on St. Martin's Press, it sold the TV rights. It was fun, but uh, but when when I would tell people about this book, I would get two distinctly different reactions from friends who are writers or who are in media. When I would say we sold Mr. Nice Guy, they would say, "Congratulations, that's so awesome." But entrepreneurs did not say that when I told entrepreneurs about this book. They said, "Huh." That's interesting. What are you going to do with it? And I came to realize that the reason why they had that reaction is because to entrepreneurs, the only reason to do something is because it is the foundation upon which the next thing will be built. Mm-hmm. And I came to I came to think of it as the difference between horizontal thinking and vertical thinking that most people in the world, and that included me for most of my career, we are horizontal thinkers, which is to say you'd like do something and you put it out in the world and then you like move along and you do something you put out in the world and you move along. You're sort of building this thing horizontally. But entrepreneurs think vertically. They think that the only reason, like I said, I'll just say it again, the only reason to do something is because it is the foundation upon which the next thing will be built. So that means that everything that they do goes through this filter of does this drive me forward in some kind of natural linear way? Which is not to say that entrepreneurs are linear because they're not. They're actually all over the place. But I think that they all see that doing one thing can lead to another thing. And that the reason to invest time in something is because you will you will extract something from that, whether it's a skill or an opportunity, and that that thing will then help drive future growth. I don't think that's how most people think. It certainly wasn't the way that I thought. And um, and and like just absorbing that, recognizing that that difference, and then trying to absorb it and 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 utilize it, like constantly try to now filter everything that I do through that same lens. That was transformative. You know, it's interesting. I like had this flashback to grade school where like we are not taught to think vertically. We're taught to think horizontally, which is very much like, okay, you're going to go to college and then you pick what you're going to major in. And then when you pick what you're going to major in, you're going to go find a job. And we're never like it, it has the aspects of building, but we're just not doing it the right way. It's almost as if we need to be teaching students that entrepreneurial mindset and how to think vertically versus, hey, don't just go out and do the next thing, figure out how those build upon each other to get you to where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah is calling out a really fundamental part of what we teach, which is how we, what we call line up our dominoes. And so that you start out in the distance and work your way back. Like, where am I trying to go? Why am I trying to go there? And you line up the things that need to happen like dominoes. So the one knocks over the other, knocks over the other to ultimately achieve your goal, which 
sounds very much in line with what uh, you recognize there. And I, I want to circle that back to a, a part of the book or I think a, a quote from the book, but she said, it's the difference between what you do and why you do it. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really great. And there's there's something there around like purpose, I think that uh, I'd love to hear from you and what that means for you. And you think about like, how can you use that to line up where you're going and what yeah. will next thing you want to knock over? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so I, I, I came to realize, and I had my own experience with this. I came to realize that a, like a major mistake that we make, and I think the reason why change can be so difficult for people is because we too closely identify with the output of our work. So we, if somebody came up to you at a party and said, what do you do? Like, the thing that you're going to say is based on either your tasks or your role. And, uh, and that's it's fine. It's a good shorthand for what you do. Um, but the problem is that if you haven't personally thought any deeper about your own identity, then you are very, very attached, uh, dangerously so, to the output of your work. Now, why is that a problem? It's a problem because the output of your work is going to change. The way in which you do something is going to change. The role that you have is going to change. And so what happens to you and your identity when those things change. As a result, I think that what we need to do is do something different. We need to identify the thing about us that does not change in times of change. Now, this is all this is all very abstract. So I'll I'll give you an example. Um, you know, when I when I started out, my first job out of college was a, I was a newspaper reporter. I was a community newspaper reporter in a tiny, tiny newspaper in North Central Massachusetts. And I, um, I loved being a newspaper reporter. I, 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 I identified with it. And, uh, and then a couple of years in, when I discovered that actually I didn't really want to be a newspaper reporter because the hours suck and the pay sucks. I mean, my first job at a college paid me 20K. Uh, like, uh, then um, I, uh, I stayed in those jobs for too long because I was a newspaper reporter. And if I lost that job, then what am I? Um, Then I started talking to... Well, you know, my career advanced. I started talking to entrepreneurs and I found that entrepreneurs talk differently. They often have this mission statement, this, this sentence, this way of understanding themselves that is not tied to a specific product or service or way in which to operate. And that seems to give them the ability to feel a sense of direction even when everything else around them is swirling. Um, I pushed myself to do a version of this and I, I, I came to a sentence. And the sentence is, I tell stories in my own voice. I don't tell not magazine stories, not newspapers, not books, not podcasts. I tell stories. And that means that, of course, if you take one of those away, it doesn't inhibit my ability to tell stories. My entrepreneur magazine could fire me tomorrow and or today, I guess. And uh it's there's still time in the day. And uh <laughs> and uh and I would um I would still be able to tell stories. Um, I've heard other versions of this. Uh, uh, the CEO of a company called Foodsters told me um that their mission is to upgrade 
uh, to bring joy to people with upgraded sweet baked goods. I love that because it, it's not about any specific product. Uh, it's not about any specific delivery mechanism. Um, I was talking about this with Gary Vaynerchuk. He said that um, he, his def, his mission is two words, practical optimism, uh, and that everything that he does is filtered through that. I think the more that we can define ourselves by what does not change in times of change, the 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 more we will understand how we have value that transfers regardless of circumstance. Mm. Yeah, it feels it feels like the alternative of that is is very short sighted too. It's it's hard to really zoom out and and have a bigger picture when things are happening in front of you. If you're too short sighted, you don't have a calibrated compass to know you know which direction you should take. Or or the opposite of it is um, is too narrow a definition of yourself such mm. that right like. I remember years ago, this, I, would, this, I can't even remember who told me this, but they told me this little, quick little anecdote and it like, had haunted me ever since, which was, um, which was, uh, it was uh, somebody who I knew who was talking to someone who had recently been laid off from their job as a movie reviewer at a regional newspaper. Now, that is good. That, like the next, <laughs> like, you know, people who are uh, 10 years old right now are going to grow up and that phrase will make zero sense to them. Right? <laughs> we might already be there. Yeah. Yeah. We probably are. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Probably. Yeah, I'm sure we are. But, um, but like, you know, regional newspapers used to have their own on staff movie reviewers and they now they don't. They just run like the Associated Press Review or whatever. But, but back then they did. And, um, and so this, this person I was talking to was, was telling me that they were talking to this, this person who was laid off. And they just had absolutely no idea what to do with their lives because they had, as far as they were concerned, one skill that they had spent their entire career cultivating, which was to be a movie reviewer. And now there are basically no jobs for movie reviewers. I mean, you know, you could take to Twitter, but nobody's going to pay you. So, um, so uh, I, I remember hearing that and, and just finding that haunting because I was like, I at the time I was in media and I was like, wow, I could, that could be me, right? Like I could define myself as like, I am a long form magazine editor. All I do is edit three to 4,000 word magazine stories, which is, those are people, people do that. That's their job. And that was my job. And that's fine. You know, but the problem is that there are going to be fewer and fewer opportunities to do that work. And if that is how you define yourself in this very narrow way, well, then you're, you're just, you're, you know, you're sitting on a, on a iceberg as it melts into the sea. And so instead you, you just, you have to, you have to figure out what else you do. What is the deeper thing that you do that isn't just this task that could change at any moment? What I think is important for the listener is like, number one, you know, the point of developing or or discovering, I should say, your purpose is like goes beyond your identity at work, right? And that I think a lot of, I know a lot of my female friends have that similar problem, which is when they make the transition from one job to another or a job to motherhood, there Mm -hmm. is that like change that they don't know how to handle because they have attached themselves so deeply to their careers for so long. Um, And what I'd love to ask in this situation is like, is that a fundamental flaw in, I can't even believe I'm going to say this because mm-hmm. we talked about it a couple of episodes ago, the educational system in which we teach students to choose something and make that who they are as they move through school and college. Like they, 
it almost behooves them to think about it totally different and walk into college and have your own identity and your own purpose at least somewhat developed so you're not overtaken by you know who you are becoming as a career or a professional um it maybe it's you know a rhetorical question but it's just <laughs> well i'll 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 do my best to answer it uh you know with the caveat that i am not a scholar in the failings of the uh, American education system. But I, I actually uh, uh, can offer you this, this historical tale, which is, uh, which is adjacent to the thing that you asked, but but uh, but I think really insightful about um, the sort of the challenge that we have as we as we kind of learn and develop. So um and then and then I'll make this uh, effort to bridge the two. Okay, so um have you know have have you guys heard this? complaint i'm sure that you have maybe you've made this complaint which is that nobody knows how to write anymore right like uh, like ah people are terrible writers why are they terrible writers everyone's a terrible writer and um um and then you know if you if you turn on cable news what you'll find uh is like people blaming modern things for that people are bad writers because of texting people are bad writers because of twitter people are bad right and um and so uh, I, I had I had seen uh, these old newspaper clips of people making these same complaints, like you know, long before texting, right? The people in the 1970s or the 1950s, or the 1920s, like making these complaints about uh, people are bad writers, and so obviously it, the, it's not like texting and Twitter that did this. So what is it? And um, I found this f- fascinating professor named Elizabeth Wardle at uh, at Miami University of Ohio who has done a lot of research into this and uh, and says that actually all of this dates back to a to a, to a very specific year which is 1875 and she'd say yeah i know exactly that was my reaction i was like what what happened in 1875 right so um so here's what happened in 1875 um okay so prior to 1875 the american higher education system was was a was a primarily like or it was like an oral tradition uh, <laughs> uh right so you'd have these um you know largely wealthy white men who would go to your harvard universities of of the 1800s um and uh and they would uh they would they would be taught in almost really entirely orally so um it would be all about learning the classics and and speaking and dialogue and debate and um but around this time, the American economy is rapidly changing and it's becoming more industrialized and more specialized. Now we have more special specialized jobs. And uh, and these specialized jobs require different kinds of education. And so American higher education institutions want to keep up with this. And so they start to they start to kind of shift um, who they accept and how they accept them, and then also what they're teaching them. And for the very first time, and here's the moment, for the very first time, Harvard Institutes. A, um, a a written exam uh, to get into Harvard. And that is when the professors of Harvard discover that nobody knows how to write. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so now they say, ugh, this is terrible. These, pe- these idiot kids, they have no idea how to write. And then they make this, they make the fatal flaw, according to Elizabeth Wardle, which is that they say, well, but it's not our problem. Like, we're not supposed to fix this, but there's enough pressure on them to do something. And so what they do is they create something that we all went through today. And that is that they create basically like freshman comp, 
right? That 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 is the solution for for higher education, and um and so when they so they create freshman comp and um around uh, similarly the like the lower the this grade schools uh, or you know whatever secondary education, um you know high school whatever you would want to call it, um you know like higher ed is blaming high schools and high schools are like this is not our problem but okay we'll come up with a solution and the solution is the five paragraph essay, so um so now you have students who um as they're growing up are taught that writing happens in one way and it's called a five paragraph essay. And then they go into college and they're taught that writing only happens in one way. And it's through like these very specific, this very specific English course called freshman comp. And like, this is what an essay looks like. And this is the only way that writing happens. And you know what that, the result of that is? The result of that is that like very, very few people actually develop an imagination about and a love of writing. And they see writing as a very particular tedious thing that takes one form and one form only. And then, oh my gosh, you graduate into the real world and actually nobody writes in a five-paragraph essay at all. And so now this thing that you learned was completely useless. And that is basically the system that we've created, right? So why can, why does nobody write? It's because nobody's teaching writing. That's the problem. It's because nobody is teaching writing. And um, and like what they're actually teaching is this like very narrow, pass the buck, I don't really know how to teach you writing, so here's like a bunch of boxes to check style of education. And that helps zero people. So that's the problem. Now, you asked like, you know, is the way in which students are are, are educated kind of leading to a, maybe a lack of imagination about how to build themselves? And I think that there's plenty to say for that because what we have is a system. And look, I don't, I, this is where I, you know, again, I'm not an education scholar. I don't know how to build a better system. But, um, but, but certainly, uh, you know, I went through this system just like you guys did. And what I saw was, was a pretty um, assembly line kind of experience. And, um, and I think that that means that, you're a little bit on your own at the end of that as to what you are, what are you exposed to, and how does that uh, then? Um, how do you like utilize what you're exposed to to build something? So if you maybe came from an entrepreneurial family, you might have a better sense of business um, and 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 money for that matter, uh, or maybe you just meet uh, the right people uh, along the way and they help shape that idea of yours, or maybe you don't and your vision of yourself is 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 limited by your experiences and. You know that's a shame. So yeah, we should always be thinking about like I, I think that there's probably so much untapped potential out there in the world of, of of people who could have built amazing things, but just didn't know that they could, didn't know that it was possible. And uh, and you know I, I think that all of us, uh, you know, by by getting into the the line of work that we're in, uh, have something of a responsibility to try to expose more people to the potential that they 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 can. Um, it it just it requires thinking differently than what they were taught. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, this, clearly there's a, a knowledge or a skill gap that's not provided in traditional education that enables your imagination, that allows you to design intentionally. What is this vision for my life, and what is that purpose that we're saying helps inform uh, the direction you want to take and in times of, of change that it can help point you where you want to go and it gives you a, a better uh, tool set to to work through this change and once we we have that it enables us to then be informed and if we're in this this kind of change process I know you called out in your book that there are four phases of change that yeah. really show up for you and I'd love to go through that if we can and yeah us through those four phases and some context because I think that's really valuable sure so I you know um I mentioned it at the beginning, but to go into more depth, so it is the four phases of change that I find everybody goes through. It doesn't matter who you are, how successful you are. Panic, most familiar. 
adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. Wouldn't go back being that moment where you say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. Um, it's so interesting because it doesn't matter who you talk to. Everyone can kind of find themselves in that in that story. And um, and what I found is, is again, that the, the, the difference maker is not overcoming that or passing or, you know, or, or avoiding the, uh, any part of that, but rather being able to move through it uh, as efficiently as possible. And I think the, the, the greatest thing that you can do is to, is to have a confidence that there is a wouldn't go back moment at the end of it. And, you know, we, we can talk about how to kind of manage each individual phase, but I think the, 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 the overarching thing to understand is like, there's a, there's a, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow here. But if you don't see the pot of gold, then why ever cross the rainbow? Mm-hmm. I would love to dive deeper into, you know, how do you move through, maybe not how do you move through or the value of moving through some of these phases and what happens or what did you see happen when people got to that wouldn't go back phase? Like, was it often this aha moment of like, oh shit, I don't need to go back to that. Or was it a a deflating moment? Well, it's, you know, it's it's never really a deflating. The deflating moment comes afterwards when you reach this wouldn't go back moment, and then you realize that like it's not the last time that you'll ever have to go through change. <laughs> but um, but um, well, let, let, I'll give you kind of um, let's let's take the let, we'll go back to the beginning of it and talk about panic in a little bit. Although I, some of the things that we've already talked about, like identifying. So separating your what and your why, I think, kind of go a long way towards trying to orient yourself in those earlier phases. Um, but I'll give you just, you know, so that we can see like what a wouldn't go back moment looks like. Um, so I was talking to this woman, her name is Lena Fleminger. She is the owner of Lena's Wigs, which is just a wig shop in Baltimore. And um, and Lena... Shout out to uh, Lena. Shout out to Lena. Um, uh, yeah, shout out because I, she told me this story and I could just keep repeating it because I love it. Uh, so, uh, okay. So Lena, uh, ran her store like a storefront because it was a storefront and you know exactly how a storefront works. It is, it's on the street and people can walk in and they can browse the merchandise. That's how a storefront is. And, um, and, uh, Lena, you know, never really thought, uh, uh, that she needed to make any major change to that. But then the pandemic came along and, it, 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 you remember in those early days, like you couldn't run a storefront. People couldn't walk in off the street, even if there was anybody to walk in off the street. It's, it's just, that's not what was happening. So Lena was trying to figure out, well, how do I keep my business operational? Like, how do I not just close? And so the only thing that she could think of was something that was not like some um, some like wacky, crazy, out of nowhere idea. It was something that she was very familiar with, which was appointment only. But in the past, Lena had always said, I'm not going to do appointment only. That's not, that's a terrible idea for my business. Like, why would I add friction to my customers? Why would I make it harder for people to buy things from me? So appointment only, terrible idea, not for me. But now she has to do it because of the pandemic. And so she moves to an appointment only model. And to her great shock and delight, two important things happen. Number one, sales and profits rise. Number two, customer happiness goes up. Why? Well, here's why. Because as it turns out, you know who doesn't buy wigs? People who walk in off the street. 
They don't buy wigs, right? You know, like they they browse wigs, but they don't buy wigs. Um, you know who does buy wigs? People who are generally shopping for, for deeply personal reasons, religious or or health. Uh, mm. Those people would really prefer to have an experience that does not include random people walking in off the street. Now, Lena also had hired someone to greet the people who walked in up the street, which again makes sense because that's what you do with a storefront. But now Lena's looking at it and she's like, oh my God, actually what I was doing was I was paying an employee, I was spending money for an employee who was catering to the people who were not my customer at the expense of the people who were my customer. And so this appointment only thing was not just like a thing that she did during the pandemic, but rather actually a, a like a light bulb moment for her about the better way to run her business. And then she started leaning into that. So she started to make a more robust digital presence and find other ways to create one-on-one experiences. And she has now reached this wouldn't go back moment where she, there's no reason for her to go back to the way that her business was before. It was fine the way it was before, but it wasn't actually designed for the people who really need her most. And now she has learned that. That is a version of the thing that we all get to go through, which is to say that like there is some moment of disruption changes the way in which we experienced uh our own work and our own lives. And it, it might have been disorienting for a while until we realized, oh my gosh, like there was actually a better way to do this, or there was a there was another opportunity ahead that I didn't see. And it it was hard and it required kind of experimentation and discovery and and um and maybe you know some some serious loss along the way. But it's there. And that's what these moments look like. Uh, that that's a really good example. And I think everybody can connect to that. And I was thinking as you're talking about it, in each one of these phases, there's I'm sure you've got some best practices and kind of triggers. But we were talking about earlier, I'd mentioned like, hey, I recognize this feeling and I've tried to teach myself over time, like, hey, that's growth. But I wonder mm-hmm. if some kind of trigger or recognition like that you might be approaching a panic state so you know change is afoot so you can kind of call your emotional hijacking out and then mm. stay clear about like, what is the adaptation that you need to make? And not have that that cloud of of uh, poor judgment for a period of time that you're triggered in some way. But I mean, beyond that, I mean, are there other best practices that you you call out uh, around each one of these phases to think about? Oh yeah, sure. I'm gonna have a ton of them, but I'll uh, I'll tell you kind of one at the very beginning here. So I think one of the challenges that we have is that we we equate change with loss. So when something new comes along, the first thing we do is we like think about the thing that we already have that we're comfortable and familiar with, and we say. Well, that is going to go away now, and I'm not going to have access to it. And then we, because we want to know what's going to come next, and we're working off of the limited information that we have, what we do next is we extrapolate the loss. So we say, well, because I lost this, I will also lose that. And because I lost that, I'll lose this other thing. And then suddenly it feels like we've lost everything. And that is when we really start to panic. I think that is the, that is the, that is the, the maker of panic. Um, and so, well, what's a better way to do things? Uh, I would argue that if if we feel like we are losing everything, um, but the experience is not negotiable, right? I mean, like oftentimes, like oftentimes, it's like we're, it's like we want to negotiate a, a, a change. We want to be able to say, oh, this is something that I, I this is surely some way in which I could just stop this, or you know." But these are they're, they're not generally negotiable, right? You can't like opt out of the future. It's not like an opt-out button. So um, 
so so what do you do? I think that the answer is that is that you you have to you have to take it for what it is, which is like th- these things are going to change. Well, maybe there will be some loss, but there will be gain. And so how do we focus in on what that gain could be? Gain is much harder to see than loss. You don't see it immediately. Sometimes you have to just hypothesize what it is and it'll come later. But like, how do we start to, how do we start to look going forward? Um, there are three questions that I, I, I generally like to ask to help us get there. So, which is uh, uh, number one, what are we, um, what are we doing new? Like what's just, what, what, what is, what new thing is happening? Uh, question number two, what new habit or skill are we learning as a result? Because something will change, like, and and it will it will teach us and teach other people something. And then number three, how do we put that to good use? Uh, because when you start to put your own experience of change through those three basic questions, right? Basically, it's like let's observe what's happening. Um, let's see what the output of that hap- that that thing is. Like, what, what is the raw material that's being created as a result of that? What like new insight do we have? What new lessons do we have? What new buying you know patterns do, do, do people have? Like, whatever the case is. And then number three, of course, is well, how is that put to good use? What could we do with that? We got to be able to do something with that. Um, and uh, right, I mean, if you if you think about Lena, right? Like, um, you go to appointment only. People now. People now have a, a, a you know, they, now they're they're they have to contact her directly. Uh, they have to go through some extra steps. Uh, maybe that seems like burdensome at first, but like, how does that get be put to good use? Well, the answer is 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 um, exceptional one on one customer service. That's how that's put to good use. At which point, people see that there's actually tremendous value in going through these extra steps to contact Lena because they're going to get a much better experience as a result. Then the more that we can reframe any kind of loss as where is the gain, the more we can start to move confidently towards it. And we might not be right. The gain might be different than we're thinking. But as long as we're thinking in that mindset, we're going to identify opportunities before other people do. I love that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's at the core of of the transform the way you think, right? Orient yourself on what the opportunity is and mm-hmm. not the current challenge that you're facing and know that it's out there and you'll find it if you're open to it. Yeah, I, that's that's absolutely right. You'll find it if, you op- if you're open to it. I think it's a really, really, is, 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 is an incredibly important takeaway. Like you will, you will not find it if you're, if you're begrudging and you're closed off to it. Uh, this this all this all happened. I think that's why panic often takes so long is because panic is really people holding on to the past. and um and and as you start to move away from it and and through into other phases, when you start to is when you start to become open to, well, look, i got I got to do something here. And that means that I got to be open to whatever it is that's next, yeah, you have the option to either sit in the shit or keep going. <laughs> Well, we know that we, we need to have a plan for embracing change and we need to be able to adapt. You need to be able to pivot and, and especially in the fast paced world that we're in today. And you need to be able to build your, your habits in a way that uh, I think, as you put it, like really future proofs your career. Um, and I think that's, this has been a really great conversation to highlight some of those things that you call out in your book. And I want to make sure we get a chance for you to uh, let the listeners know, like, where can they find Bill for tomorrow? And what else, uh, where else can they find you on social, et cetera? 
Sure. So I appreciate that. So Build for Tomorrow, you can find it anywhere you find books uh, or... Aud- Whoa. Oh my gosh. What did I just do? This is funny. This is a funny thing that I did, which is I just accidentally tapped yeah, you're, my... You're, yeah, you're going down yeah, slowly. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, just, I just bought this and, uh, and I didn't know that I could accidentally tap something and it would just start going down. Um, so for those who didn't get to the visual of that, my I'm speaking to you at a standing desk and I literally bought one yet like last week and it's like a, it's got the buttons on the side and the auto down. So yeah, we, I hit auto down. And suddenly like the, my entire system started running away from me. It would have been great if you ground. just owned that and then just exit and frame. Right. It's like this is how it's the same thing. Just keep going with it. <laughs> um so uh, uh, anyway, uh, to to get back to my sales pitch here. So anyway, you can yeah you can buy so build for tomorrow the book. It's available wherever you find books. Uh, also available in audiobook. Also available in ebook. So whatever format you like, except for like stone tablet, uh, it's available in. And um, and uh, and then also I, I have a podcast which is by the same name, which is called Build for Tomorrow, where I dig into the. The, the things that we misunderstand um, and uh, and the, the the changes that seem really scary to us and I try to understand what's underneath them. So for example, that long rant that I went on about the education system and writing, like that all came from that podcast. So anyway, Build for Tomorrow, the book and Build for Tomorrow, the podcast are uh, great things to check out. Awesome, Jason. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, and we like to uh, close it out with, uh, oh, with yeah. a question for you. So no, we like to bring it down to... Uh, what would you like our listeners, the one thing you would like our listeners to take away from the podcast today? Oh, um, the, the one, I guess the one thing that I'd, I'd like everyone to take away from, um, aside from, of course, that you deeply want to go purchase my book, is that... Um, <laughs> Is that uh, is is to reconsider the impossible, right? Like a lot of what we've talked about here is basically uh, is basically grappling with that there were opp- opportunities or options or things to do that we had filed away as impossible, right? Like uh, you know, Lena thought that appointment only was impossible. There's just there are all these things that we say, you know, oh that change is impossible. That that new idea is impossible. But oftentimes the greatest value comes from reconsidering that and, and actually trying the things that we think are the hardest because it turns out that they're the most gratifying. That's awesome. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Jason. Oh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week.